0: There's so much happening in the crypto space right now. I feel like I'm opening up uh, different feeds every day talking about another challenge that's going on. Obviously that's been a, the story since June. Well one of the places I go is the Canadian Bitcoiners podcast and I've got one of the co-hosts with me Je- uh, Joey Terprilli with me. Joey, first of all appreciate you finding time. It is a busy time there. I mean do you feel the same way uh, that just stuff is just coming at you all the time like this this company has a problem, that company has a problem.
1: It's, uh, first of all, a pleasure to be here again with you and your listeners, Mike. It's good to take a break from shoveling snow here in Southern Ontario today. We're recording <laughs> Friday about midday, and it's a mess out there. Uh, as far as the crypto and Bitcoin space, what a week. Uh, and ongoing, obviously, as we, as we speak here, sort of watching continued unwind, continued contagion. Um, it does feel like we're drinking from the hose a little bit here, uh, as I'm sure some of your listeners feel as well.
0: Well, a contagion seems to be the word. You know that uh, this is a case where you know if one company goes, maybe in another business, someone might think, "Hey, great, that's a chance for us to get more customers." I'm not so sure that's the impression right now. It's, "Oh, great, we're going to be under more scrutiny."
1: Well, I, I look at uh, what is basically the top story in crypto right now—the Silvergate news and the unwind related to Silvergate. I, I'm of different opinions, I think, than maybe some traditional finance uh, minds. You know, Mike. In crypto and Bitcoin, and I'll lump them together here for uh, for the sake of sort of continuity of the conversation, banks are being discouraged, specifically in the United States, uh, from dealing with Bitcoin and crypto. And when I say banks, what I really mean is the monsters, the monoliths, the, the stuff that drives the financial sector in the US, the too big to fail types, as it were. There's there's a lot of problems with that from sort of a principle and ethic standpoint, but From a pragmatic standpoint, the problems are greater and more consequential, and immediately so in this case. I want you to consider a system where only a few banks are able to get over the hurdles to provide quote unquote crypto or Bitcoin services. It's not that JP Morgan can't get over those humps or Chase can't get over those humps. It's that it's so expensive and the pressure, as you mentioned, so great that it's not worth running a traditional bank with a crypto arm, let's say, or a Bitcoin arm. Instead, you get these, uh, we'll call them boutique banks. And there's only a few of these boutique banks, right, Mike? So what happens is people who want to deal in crypto tokens, Bitcoin, uh, other sort of you know, tangentially related things in the space, we, we end up with a very concentrated group of institutions who are dealing with this stuff. And normally, that wouldn't raise a lot of red flags. But when you think about the volatility in Bitcoin and crypto, what do you see? You see monster swings like we've seen in the last 24 hours, maybe 48 hours by the time this is released. And when that happens, the contagion, you know, maybe quote unquote contained, but it's amplified. Silvergate was a publicly traded company as well. So it's not like these guys are not regulated as some, I think, American politicians would have you believe. So if if you kind of unwind this, what does it mean? You have uh, first world governments. I'll point to America because Silvergate's an American bank, but it's happening here in Canada and it's happening in Europe as well. You have governments pointing banks away from crypto. And so crypto banks have to deal with, I don't want to call them second rate institutions, but they're certainly not as financially sound as the monsters are, nor are they as protected uh, as the monsters are. So you have that problem. And when those banks have problems, Mike, and people are hurt, investors are hurt, depositors are hurt, the associated companies are hurt. We have the same politicians who forced clients into the hands of those banks and force those banks away from a lot of the same supports that the monoliths get, those politicians are then saying, well, I'll tell you what the problem is here. It's Bitcoin. It's crypto. This is the equivalent of sort of yelling fire in the movie theater. And then when when everyone leaves, they say, well, the problem is that you shouldn't have movie theaters where everyone can just run out like this and there's a huge problem, a contagion uh starts. Th- there's a problem with the incentives there, Mike. Uh, and politicians, I think, really need to take a look in the mirror and say, what are we protecting people from by doing this? The answer, in my view, is nothing.
0: Well, it's interesting. My my opening comment, of course, was talking about a similar situation with groceries. I mean, I won't go into it again, but, you know, like government doesn't want to talk about the fingerprints that they have all over prices. And in this case, uh, you know, they help create the problem. And of course, they'd never admit to that. I, I'm just wondering if politicians wouldn't just want to close their eyes and wish it all away you know, that they don't want the competition. And that's something I've been worried about from the get go is that, of course, they control monetary policy. That's one of their biggest weapons. And, you know, cryptos outside of that space or Bitcoin is outside. And, and I appreciate your distinction uh, earlier that there's so many aspects to this and it's not so simplistic as to just say Bitcoin all of a sudden. But I'm just saying I'm not so sure they are overly simplistic looking at it, too, but I, I think they'd wish it to go away.
1: I think you're probably right. It's interesting you bring this up. There was a news release, I believe, last night or the night before. Again, things happening so quickly here. I'm having trouble keeping track of the yeah. uh, the drops. But the Biden administration is looking to implement a 30% tax on crypto mining. They're going to include Bitcoin in that because yeah. you know even if they knew any better, they wouldn't make a distinction. You know, to me, what what does what does this say about the current administration's desires, and maybe more importantly, what does it say about their fears? Well, if I look at Bitcoin mining, I see, you know, friends of mine, for example, kind of hobbyists who have Bitcoin miners in their home and they use them for things like space heaters, clothes dryers, they're they're just as efficient, they can be tuned in a way that makes sense to uh, sort of preserve power during peak times, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of different levers you can use with a Bitcoin miner that you can't use with a traditional space heater, for example, or a traditional dryer, mm-hmm. all these other kind of uh, traditional tools. So are you going to really tax the hobbyist on his space heater or dryer? I don't know. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Then I think about why would they want to tax Bitcoin mining under the guise of energy consumption? Mike, we we saw this in 2021. You know, your listeners may may not be familiar, but there was a a broad ban on Bitcoin mining in China back in 21. And in 2021, what we saw was the Bitcoin network security, the hash rate, as it were, the metric that measures security, Uh, based on the number of miners online, dropped significantly for a very short time. And those miners relocated, dispersed all over the world. And before we knew it, we were back at an all-time high in hash rate. So you can think about what that means. People are not only willing to uh, take the miners offline very, very quickly, but probably, Mike, most of them had a plan to either sell them or or reestablish them in some other geographic location. The resiliency of the network is incredible. And a ban on mining in the States or a 30% tax on mining in the States uh, is not going to change the outcome. What it will do, uh, you know, to your, to what it will do to just to continue down this road is push the energy consumption into places that are less regulated. Would you rather have miners in Mongolia, for example, or would you rather have them in the states? My guess is that as much as I may disagree with some of the energy regs in the states, it's a lot cleaner to use and and as it were mine for energy in the United States than it is in Mongolia. And so you're not really doing anything for the environment. You're just amplifying a problem you already have, which is that no one else cares about the green regulations except for the modern democracies. It doesn't make things better. I I also will just add this last point. There is a clear inverse correlation in the amount of energy that the U.S. dollar is forced to expend to continue its hegemony abroad. The less people want to use the U.S. dollar, the more wars, the more bloodshed, It has to happen this way. The United States doesn't talk about this much, but anyone who can sort of make that deductive reasoning will come to the same conclusion. The less adoption, the more force required, the more energy required. In Bitcoin, Mike, it's the opposite. As the energy consumption goes up, it's because adoption is going up. It's because people who who want to use it, it, the number is going up, right? These two things are not talked about side by side often enough. And I think that that's to the detriment of... Bitcoiners. We should be talking about that a lot more because it's hard to argue with that distinction. Mm
0: -hmm. Where do you, I mean, and again, I'm asking for these sort of uh, Barbara Walters, like this is a sophisticated issue, but you know, I look at uh, one of my big worries all the way along was the level of regulation that the governments would employ. You just gave us a great example of that. And I'm glad you brought that up, but all the way around, you know, if. Something's going to change here, I think. And I'm just worried about individual investors. Uh, I'm not looking for advice. I'm just looking for what landscape do you think they'll face if you close your eyes and come back a year or two years from now?
1: It's a good question. There's a, a lawsuit that uh, is developing right now. The New York Attorney General is suing a exchange called KuCoin. And KuCoin is one of many exchanges that offers a number of these alt coins, uh, and and among them, they offer Ethereum to investors and to, to people who want to trade the assets. The New York Attorney General's office is citing something called the Martin Act, which is I think a hundred year old law that, you know, it's it's more or less the same as the Howey test. Mike, if your if your listeners are familiar with that, can you expect that the efforts of a third party, a centralized third party? will increase the value of your investment over time. And they're making this claim against Ethereum. They, note, they noted though, that Bitcoin doesn't fall under this distinction. And so the thing that I think people who are investing in crypto assets, not named Bitcoin, have to ask themselves is, and this is a difficult question to ask because there is a distinction between what was Ethereum when it launched and what is it now? It's more decentralized now, but I think ultimately still falls under a security umbrella. What these people need to ask themselves is, if I'm looking for new money, if I'm looking for an investment vehicle that makes sense as far as transactional value, and if I'm looking for an asset that doesn't have a central body that can be pressured and forced to comply with governments, I can't find it in Ethereum. None of those things are happening in Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't have a, you know a president, a CEO, a foundation. Um, it's very much decentralized. And so the question that we need to ask as far as your comment about come back in 10 years I think Bitcoin is going to be around in 10 years. In fact, I'm almost sure Ethereum, you know, Mike, the three to five year time horizon is looking foggier and foggier by the day.
0: Uh, An important point though, for individuals is, uh, You know this is an attractive investment vehicle generally again i know i'm being too broad on that but attractive investment vehicles dealing with people's concerns about you know the over creation of money and that's still going on you know momentarily government regulation etc and the other distinction you made between uh, developed nations and, and third world i don't see it going away i mean what's your currency alternative in about 125 nations and so i i see that possibility expansion there plus U.S. regulations aren't going to change that. You know, they're not going to be able to reach into Africa, reach into South America in some parts.
1: Right. The The sovereign individual thesis, you know, the sovereign individual for your listeners who don't know is a book uh, written some time ago, I think 20 plus years ago now, basically wholly writ in Bitcoin circles. Um, and you, you're bringing up there something that m- most would just refer to as, you know, geographic arbitrage. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you want to be part of a nation or a citizen of a nation that supports the things you care about, fiscal responsibility, not overprinting, not overpromising on entitlements, making living affordable. Um, You know, I hate to say it, Mike, but it's, it's all, you know, these are all things that I think in Canada right now, you're seeing cracks in some of these things, some of these ideals. These are things that made Canada what it is today, and we've gotten away from that. And so, you know, the sovereign individual thesis is interesting in that the one thing that was always missing, even as we grew uh, that the capability to work from anywhere even as we grew the capability to have have you know to be productive writing lines of code as opposed to producing a car even as we grew the capability to be international as people we we're missing the currency the currency was always a bit of a hang up well now my suspicion is that governments are looking at this as they continue to apply oppressive tax regimes continue to put the clamps down on innovation, continue to put the clamps down on things like home ownership and capital formation, topics you address all the time, people are going to start to look and say, we have another alternative here that wasn't prevalent before, wasn't a sure thing before. And Bitcoin, to me, Mike, more and more looks to be that final piece to the the puzzle when it comes to being truly a sovereign individual. I think that's important.
0: And of course, that'll create the support for it and demand going forward. But uh, again, coming back to the distinction, that's not what we're talking about. If you're talking about some of the problems like FTX, and of course, which really put things on the front page, uh, it's a different issue and that'll also evolve. But that's the point I actually want to make that it's a different issue.
1: Right. Yeah. The the FTX crisis, which you, which you and I spoke about in some detail in my last appearance, you know, this is ongoing. Uh, the number of tentacles that that, that collapse had you know you and i both thought they were many in number at the time they were even many more in number yeah. it's still going on almost every show i listen to has an ftx segment now in fact there's one podcast that plays the godfather music while they introduce the latest in the saga it's really become it's really become a meme of, of sorts right yeah. and when I, when i look at ftx when i look at silvergate when i look at these other institutions like celsius the the common theme among them mike is that they follow the model that traditional banks use fractional reserve triple and quadruple lending, um, you know, it, play, playing games with financialization that cost their customers. The only difference, okay, to return to my my earlier point, is that the protections that the monoliths enjoy are not there for those yeah. smaller companies, are not there for those crypto banks. Now, I'm not suggesting they should be. My, my suggestion would be to narrow the scope of focus in the products you are able to offer to your clientele and, and put safety and protection before you put... You know, monster profits, let's say, or whatever the case is. But at the end of the day, the models—the models that are working—are the ones that embrace, you know, full reserve, uh, embrace no yield product, N- none of this stuff, right? This sort of fancy, uh, fancy earn uh, tokens and whatnot—the flywheel, as it's been called for the last few months. The, the stuff that's working are the um, the ones related to to sound money principles, and uh, I think you're going to continue to see that.
0: Well, yeah, that's that last phrase is exactly what I continue to think about when I get bombarded on a daily basis with this, like the old serials, to be continued. This is a story (laughs) that's got a lot more legs. And I'd invite people to go and listen to the Canadian Bitcoiners podcast, where you, of course, keep up to date on this on a momentary basis. But yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating world. I think it's a, a glimpse into the future. And you do a fabulous job on that podcast of explaining and exploring all of that. And I appreciate you finding time for us today.
1: It's my pleasure, Mike. Anytime.